It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Good morning to all of you. My name is George Hastings, and I'm a special master of the United States Court of Federal Claims. It's June 2007, and Special Master George Hastings is just kicking off new proceedings. Special Masters are sort of like judges. Hastings is overseeing a case that involves a 12-year-old girl with autism named Michelle Cedillo. He says there are two reasons why everyone has gathered here, in a nondescript room of the National Courts Building in Washington, D.C. The purpose, first purpose of this hearing is to determine whether Michelle's own autism and her other conditions were vaccine-caused. But the second reason they're here is much bigger than this one individual case. Nearly 5,000 other claims like Michelle's have also been filed. Each one alleges a child has developed autism or a similar disability after being given their routine measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR shot. In this hearing, today and over the next three weeks, We will hear not only about Michelle's own condition, but also extensive expert testimony concerning the petitioner's first general causation theory. That is, the general theory that MMR vaccines and thimerosal-containing vaccines can combine to cause autism. These proceedings will not actually take place in a courtroom, but in front of a trio of judicial officials called special masters. Their job is to resolve complaints filed with what's known as the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. This little-known program is where people who believe they were injured by routine shots in the U.S. go to make their case. It exists as an alternative to suing drug makers. Instead, vaccine injury complaints are heard by the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. In other words, this is vaccine court. Public anxiety about autism and vaccines had been simmering for years. Now, the court would hear the evidence. It would rule on whether there was a possible link between the two. Michelle Cedillo's complaint was just one of six test cases. It had taken five years to get to this day. A lot had been building to this moment. Both sides would present a parade of expert witnesses. Among them, psychiatrists, toxicologists, and neurologists. But one name in particular kept coming up. As one of the attorneys for the U.S. government frames it, the root of this controversy could be traced back to just one man. And that one man's theories, the attorney says, were fake. It's a contrivance. It's a contrivance that's been developed and articulated and promoted by its chief proponent, and that's Andrew Wakefield. Andrew Wakefield was the spark that turned modern skepticism about vaccines into a movement. And now, his movement is having its day in court. Wakefield had spent roughly a decade trying to sell the public on the idea that childhood vaccines were unsafe. If the government sides with the Cedillo's case, it could legitimize that campaign. Wakefield was not a party in this hearing, but this pivotal moment probably would not be possible without him. In this episode, we're going to tell you the story of Andrew Wakefield. We'll trace the path of the former gut surgeon as he became the world's most well-known critic of vaccines will show how his decades-long misinformation campaign gained recognition from concerned parents, lawmakers, and celebrities. 
and how the groundwork Wakefield laid decades ago helped seed the mistrust we're seeing in the age of the coronavirus. But this isn't just a story about Andrew Wakefield. It's also a story about the forces that propelled him into the spotlight and then kept his myth alive. I'm Bloomberg News health reporter Kristen V. Brown. From the Prognosis Podcast, this is Doubt. The story of Andrew Wakefield's quest to undermine the safety of vaccines doesn't actually begin with vaccines. Yeah, it didn't start from MMR at all, although that's the sort of public perception. That's not where the story starts. This is David Salisbury. For a long time, he ran the UK's National Immunization Programme. I used to be the Director of Immunization at the Department of Health in London, UK, where I was responsible for the National Immunization Programme. So that was for bringing into use new vaccines, managing the use of existing vaccines, looking at the impact of our vaccines, and and heading up the national policy. David says Andrew Wakefield first reached out to him in September 1992. It was an odd call. It was along the lines, you need to take very seriously what I'm telling you, and if you don't take seriously what I'm telling you, it may be to the detriment of the immunization program. And by the way, I want to talk about funding my research. It had a, an undertone of threat about it, that unless I, we, the Department of Health, the government, funded his research, then there could be threats to the vaccine program. At the time, Wakefield was a little-known researcher at Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine in London. He had trained as a gut surgeon, but now he was on the hunt for the root cause of Crohn's disease. In 1988, the UK introduced the new MMR vaccine, a shot that combined vaccines for three viruses into one. Then in 92, the government discontinued use of two brands of the shot. Occasionally, it seemed to cause meningitis instead of prevent it. This was Wakefield's opening. His research hadn't even looked at vaccines yet. But it seemed that he was already plotting to cash in on the concerns surrounding them. He was in researching that measles disease, not the vaccine, that measles disease was in some way related causally to inflammatory bowel disease. And his theory was that measles virus caused a vasculitis, an inflammation of the blood vessels within the bowel, and that that was a trigger for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, so inflammatory bowel disease. Wakefield thought that the measles might actually be causing inflammatory bowel conditions like Crohn's disease. If at this point you were confused as to why Wakefield thought the government should fund research into vaccines because of research that had nothing to do with vaccines, you should be. David didn't think Wakefield's hypothesis made a whole lot of sense. But he heard him out anyway. Remember, there were concerns about the MMR already brewing in the zeitgeist. Those two brands of the shot had just been pulled from market after it appeared they increased the risk of meningitis. And even with rigorous and extensive safety testing, sometimes vaccines do have problems. Any medical intervention can. It led to, eventually the Department of Health agreeing to set up a scientific meeting for him to present his work, along with another researcher who had got a different theory, nothing to do with measles, but who got a different theory about the origins of inflammatory bowel disease. 
And we brought together a number of experts on inflammatory bowel disease, on measles virus uh, together, and the two presented their work um, and we gave them careful consideration. So, you know, we didn't ignore his letter. But right off the bat, in that meeting with Wakefield, some of the experts there were able to poke some holes in his theory. He seemed to be using some of the lab equipment in a way that differed from the manufacturer's instructions. One of the measles experts for whom I have always had the highest respect was clearly a long way from persuaded when Wakefield explained how many PCR polymerase chain reaction cycles he was doing to try to get a positive signal. They were basically running samples through the machine way more times than recommended. The particular measles expert said, if measles was there, you would not be doing 35 PCR cycles. You would have found it very, very much earlier. This risked producing a false positive. Yeah, I think the analogy was that if you have a a stereo and you've got nothing playing through it, but you keep on turning the volume up, you'll start to hear something. What you're not hearing is Beethoven. This is probably a good place to point out that since then, nearly three decades ago, Andrew Wakefield's work has been dismissed over and over again by the scientific establishment. Eventually, British authorities would ban him from medical practice, and his work would be revealed as fraudulent. But this would take years. There were a lot of reasons why Wakefield was already thinking about a potential link between the MMR vaccine and autism. The first factor was that in the 90s, awareness of autism was increasing as researchers expanded the diagnosis to include a wide spectrum of conditions. And so what the public saw was an increase of autism cases without any context. The second factor was that the meningitis scare had kicked up fears about the MMR vaccine. Even before Wakefield hit the scene, people were starting to mobilize against vaccines. In 1994, a British mother named Jackie Fletcher launched an anti-vaccine group called JABS. Fletcher started the organization because she believed the MMR caused brain damage in her infant son. And a British lawyer named Richard Barr was working with other attorneys to put together a class-action lawsuit over the MMR. Around this time, David says Wakefield's theories changed too. He then moved on and said, ah, It's not wild virus. It's not the natural measles virus. It's the vaccine. Those initial raised eyebrows did not deter Wakefield from his quest. He went on to publish work that suggested Crohn's disease was more common in people who were vaccinated against the measles. But he made his argument by comparing two previous studies that were unrelated. In the same journal that published the study, other scientists pointed out that comparing these two studies didn't make a whole lot of sense. It didn't matter. Wakefield was convinced. It wasn't the wild measles virus causing the bowel issues. It was the measles vaccine. Wakefield's research got the attention of moms who were already concerned that MMR vaccines had hurt their kids. But that was nothing compared to what would come next. In February 1998, Andrew Wakefield published a study in The Lancet. The Lancet is one of the world's most prestigious medical journals. It's a big deal if your work is published there. The study made Wakefield famous. The study itself falsely linked the MMR vaccine to developmental issues and stomach problems by looking at just 12 children. Wakefield was an opportunist. 
He had seen the conversations bubbling about the MMR vaccine and autism and found a way to fit them into his initial theory. Wakefield didn't just quietly put out his study, though. He held a press conference, a big one. There was credibility from the places in which his work uh, was being published. There was a sort of credibility because he was saying it in the public domain in a way that doctors didn't often do. It was very unusual for a doctor to be going so public. And I think that as a person, he is persuasive. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Wakefield went even further in his claims at the press conference than he had in the paper. He also suggested that individual vaccines could be safer than the triple MMR. Measles, mumps, and rubella given together may be too much for the immune system of some children to handle. It was the launch of an all-out war against the MMR vaccine. That was really the start of a series of publications and statements that Wakefield made on a public footing that left us always having to chase to find evidence to show that he was wrong. And that put us being the scientific community, us responsible for the immunization program, in a very, very difficult position because each time that he produced what he said was new evidence, we were having to chase that to show that it wasn't right. Still, Wakefield kept trying to convince the scientific community that this work was credible. In March of 1998, Wakefield presented his work at a meeting at the Royal College of Surgeons. David was there. Again, David says other scientists poked holes in Wakefield's theories. And I don't believe that at the end of that meeting, the audience was persuaded by his uh, presentations. David says the UK's Independent Advisory Committee on Vaccines had also reviewed the research and found it unconvincing. So all of the relevant bodies that could look at the data, at the science, as the policy implications, were not persuaded that we needed to be making any changes. And indeed, we were not being asked by Wakefield to make any changes until the press conference, the on the day of the release of the Lancet paper. None of that mattered, though. The public was much more receptive to the controversial and shocking idea that vaccines might cause autism. News organizations ran with the debate. But there has been growing concern among parents and advocacy groups about the safety of many of these vaccines. In fact, some groups now believe there's a connection between autism and vaccines. The U.S. Department of Education... Doubts about the safety of the MMR vaccine had been seeded. And they would just keep growing. By the end of the 90s, Andrew Wakefield had gone from a little-known researcher to a rock star scientist. But as his profile grew... His work also invited more scrutiny, and it caught the attention of one man who would make it his mission to expose the truth 
of Wakefield's Fictions. My name's Brian Deere. I'm the author of the book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, an investigation into the origins of modern anti-vaccine campaigning. Brian Deere has written about vaccines for more than two decades. And when he first heard about the Lancet study, he thought it seemed fishy. There were some odd coincidences between it and a debunked whooping cough vaccine study. I saw that both of the papers had this time link of 14 days written into them. And uh, I, I thought, well, how could that be when vaccines were, in fact, two very different technologies? One was based on uh, killing a bacterium with a formalin preservative. The other was based on live viruses. That's, they're very different technologies. And I thought, well, how could they have that time link? But Brian let it go. I could see no way of ever being able to get to the bottom of that. So I put the thing to one side for five years. I never got involved in the story for five years after that paper was published. Then in 2003, Brian was doing a routine assignment on the MMR vaccine. Very quickly, I think within, uh, within the first week of me actually seriously doing some work on it, I interviewed one of the mothers who'd enrolled a child in Wakefield's research. That is, he interviewed the mother of one of the 12 children in the Lancet study. The names of patients involved in studies are usually anonymized. This made it tough for anyone to go about fact-checking many aspects of Wakefield's work. And the story she told me could not be reconciled with the paper. And from that, I could see that there was at least some kind of mismatch, some kind of irregularity in this paper, some kind of um, peculiarity going on. Brian kept digging. Remember Richard Barr, that lawyer who was trying to get a class action suit together over the MMR vaccine? Wakefield had actually been approached by a firm of lawyers two years before the paper was published and had taken employment with them to make a case for them, for this firm of lawyers, uh, against the MMR vaccine in order that they could get a class action lawsuit going. Brian says Barr first got interested in vaccines sort of by chance. He had a client who, after he did the conveyancing on her house, uh, she'd said to him, later that her child had received the MMR vaccine and had developed meningitis. And as soon as the government withdrew two brands of the MMR vaccine, he was on the phone to this this mother, got her into the newspapers, and once he'd got in the newspapers, he was the person to go to if you wanted to make a, a complaint about the MMR vaccine. Brian discovered that before the Lancet study, Barr had hired Wakefield to help prove their claims and send him patients for the research. Neither Wakefield's hospital nor his study co-authors knew anything about the connection. The children who'd come to the hospital weren't just children off the street, if you like, or routine patients. They'd actually been sent to Wakefield by an anti-vaccine group. The kids in the study were sent to the hospital because their parents already believed that they had been vaccine damaged. Basically, Wakefield had made a big assumption about what his study would find and then cherry-picked research subjects in an effort to prove it. The relationship between Richard Barr and uh, Andrew Wakefield and that paper which they, which they uh, devised together. And uh, that is the acorn from which the modern anti-vaccine movement has grown. It all began with Wakefield, uh, and uh, that's what the paper was all about. It was designed to be the battering ram which created the um, alarm so that they could recruit a lot of clients to this lawsuit, which they ultimately did. Not long after the paper was published, Richard Barr's lawsuit had its first day in court. 
Richard Barr declined to be recorded for this podcast. He said in an email that at the time of his lawsuit, there were genuine concerns about the MMR vaccine. He said that Wakefield was just one of many experts that he relied on to make his case in court. He wrote to me that, quote, vaccine damage is real. And it was a question of whether the symptoms described by the hundreds of parents who approached us were attributable to the MMR. End of story. End quote. He also added that he had just gotten his own COVID-19 vaccine and hopes that others do the same. Wakefield was not a fan of Brian's reporting on his work. He turned to the courts to try and shut Brian down. Wakefield, Brian, and Britain's Channel 4 wound up locked in a libel battle. No one wants to get sued, but it actually turned out to be great for Brian. Brian had already figured out the identities of all of the kids in the Lancet study. Then, he and his lawyers received medical records from Wakefield's research. And somehow... Presumably, accidentally, somebody had forgotten to redact some of those records. This gave Brian access to pretty detailed medical histories of the kids in the study. This led to some incredible fines over Wakefield's claims. Brian found that Wakefield had changed some of the initial diagnoses of the kids in the study to fit his theory. Brian says that's because Wakefield had other motivations— Besides scientific discovery. Firstly, he wanted money. Remember when Wakefield started suggesting that the triple MMR shot might not be safe? Brian says there's a reason for that. He also had set up a network of companies that was going to uh, sell what he claimed to be the first potential safer vaccine to the MMR. He'd filed for a patent eight months before his paper that launched the scare over the MMR vaccine, he patented his own single measles vaccine. So he had that. He was planning on selling diagnostic tests and what he called a potential complete cure for autism. But Brian says it also wasn't just about the money. He wanted to be a great man. He thought he was uh, a remarkable character. He thought that he was um, he was uh, a very special person, and he believed he was entitled to win the Nobel Prize. Brian's reporting found that Wakefield's university eventually insisted he do a rigorous study to replicate his findings. He refused. By this point, other researchers had already failed to duplicate his work. A lab in Ireland claimed it had independently verified the findings, but Brian found that the lab pathologist and Wakefield were actually in business together. It was a convoluted web of lies and conflicts of interest. The study that had ignited widespread panic over the MMR vaccine was pretty much anything but scientific. Brian says that the reason Wakefield focused on the measles in the first place was even suspect. He got this idea reading an encyclopedia. He went to the hospital library and took out an encyclopedia and went as an encyclopedia of viruses and uh, went through this encyclopedia virus by virus until he came to one that he thought, he thought, well, oh, well, that looks that looks promising. And it was measles. And he latched onto this idea. So he was unable to let go of his idea. But Brian hadn't even begun to look into Wakefield until five years after the study came out. By that point, doubt about the vaccine had spread. The damage had been done. David Salisbury had started his career not long after another crisis in vaccine confidence. This one over unfounded concerns about the whooping cough vaccine. There had been major epidemics of the disease in the late 70s and 80s, but eventually the UK managed to restore trust in the shot and get vaccination rates back up. But David says... The MMR vaccine rumors were stickier. If you put the balance and you have autism on one side of the scale and you have measles on the other, it's very easy to say, I'll take the risk of measles, but I won't take the risk of autism. 
It was hard to convince parents to take on even a teeny risk of autism to protect against an illness most people had never even seen in their lifetime. In the years after Wakefield's 1998 study, the number of cases of measles, mumps, and rubella would tick up each year. To counter that, it wasn't good enough to say, we don't believe it, or we know better, when we had nothing to put that on other than the background knowledge that we had, because nobody had been into the Ireland lab until much later to be able to go through their workbooks and look at what they were actually doing and try to make sense of the positive responses that we later learned were coming from empty wells in the PCR machines that themselves had not been serviced according to the manufacturer's specifications. None of that was known. Study after study had failed to reproduce Wakefield's findings. The scientific consensus was still that the MMR vaccine was safe and had no link to autism or any other similar condition. But the public was becoming increasingly hesitant. Saying to people, measles can kill, actually confronts credibility when they've never heard of anyone dying of measles. These are not quick to turn around. These are super tankers, these stories, that really are difficult to turn around. By this point, Wakefield was hardly a scientist. He had become something else, a guru. Wakefield had used his time in the limelight to push his false message, not just across the UK, but across the globe. He played the victim, the outsider to the medical establishment, speaking the hard truths about government and big pharma. And by this point, Wakefield was done with the UK anyway. His conspiracies had found a warm reception across the Atlantic in the United States. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's April 2000, and Andrew Wakefield is about to testify before Congress. We will now, uh, we'll now welcome our second panel to the witness table, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who came all the way from merry old England. We appreciate him being here. Professor John the topic Hay. is the potential link between vaccines and autism in kids. The chair of the committee is Republican Representative Dan Burton of Indiana. This is his investigation. It's personal for him. He believes his own grandson got autism because of a vaccine. But unfortunately, after receiving nine shots in one day, the MMR and the DPAT shot and the hepatitis B, within a very, very short period of time, he quit speaking, ran around banging his head against the wall, screaming and hollering, waving his hands, and became totally a different child. By this time, Wakefield had become a full blown media darling. And now he's speaking directly with American lawmakers. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. It's a great privilege to be here. The purpose of my testimony is to report the results of the clinical and scientific investigation of a series of children with autism. Now, nothing in this testimony should be construed as anti-vaccine. Rather, I advocate the safest vaccination strategies for the protection of children Wakefield speaks matter-of-factly, citing papers and using dense medical language as he rips through his presentation. 
What about vaccines? This is a paper from the, uh, the Vaccine Damage Compensation Board in the United States. Acute encephalopathy followed by permanent brain injury or death associated with further attenuated measles vaccine. What was intriguing in this cohort of During the hearing, others questioned his research, like British scientist Dr. Brent Taylor. Which, of course, is the problem of much of Mr. Wakefield's research, that it has never been independently verified. Most, no one anywhere in the world has been able to reproduce any of his studies, and it seems possible. But Wakefield seems unfazed. He keeps his cool even when asked if his research is biased. We are funded to test hypotheses, and we present the data whether the hypothesis was correct or not, and we have done that. We've gone on record as doing it. We've published negative studies in association with measles and Crohn's disease. That doesn't mean it's not there. It means that our hypothesis was wrong in terms of we could not find it using the technology. So we have gone on record as publishing both positive and negative data. Wakefield is affable and charming. He is a good listener, and he knows how to target his audience effectively. He knows how to get his message heard. I reached out many times to Wakefield through an assistant. At first, he agreed to speak with me, off record, under one condition. I had to watch several of the movies he's produced about vaccines. And so I did. And after I told his people I'd watched them, he declined to be interviewed for this podcast. His assistant told me he's just tired of being demonized by the mainstream press. Wakefield has continued to stand by his research and deny allegations against him. Parents around the world rallied around Wakefield in the early 2000s, but in the U.S. he found an especially big support network. His fans claimed the truth was being buried by scientists in the government who were in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry. In the U.S., his ideas would merge with another already percolating fear about thimerosal in vaccines. Thimerosal is a mercury-based preservative that had been added to vaccines for decades. It helps prevent bacterial growth in vials with multiple doses. So bear with me for a minute, because I have to talk about mercury in detail. There are two types of mercury. One is very bad. It is the reason why you're not supposed to eat fish when you're pregnant. That is methylmercury, and it's toxic. And in the 1990s, there were all these confusing public health messages warning people to stay away from it. But there is also another kind of mercury. Its name, ethylmercury, sounds almost exactly the same, but the body clears it quickly, and so it's unlikely to do harm. This is the mercury in vaccines. And at the same time that there was growing concern over the bad mercury, the number of vaccines given to infants grew, and some of those shots had the okay mercury in them. You see why this might be confusing. At the same time, like I mentioned earlier, awareness of autism had grown as the diagnosis for it expanded. Some parents were concerned that there was a growing autism epidemic and that all this mercury in childhood shots was to blame. Adding fuel to this theory, in 1999, out of an abundance of caution, the CDC asked vaccine makers to remove the Marisol from routine shots. When Wakefield's ideas crossed the pond, they found fertile ground. The media had started to throw some shade on Wakefield's claims, but he was still grabbing a lot of headlines. And those headlines kept the debate alive, when in reality, there was nothing to debate. If you turned on NPR in 2002, four years after Wakefield's paper came out... An article in yesterday's New York Times magazine is getting a lot of attention from parents who worry that vaccines may be causing autism. These parents long have felt that their fears have been dismissed by mainstream scientists. But this article is titled... Or C-SPAN in 2005 seven years after the paper came out. Did you come to the conclusion that the parents are right? That's an excellent question. I can comfortably say that I'm becoming more convinced that there is a connection. When you look at the biological evidence, when you look at the children with autism themselves, and you notice that they have higher levels of mercury in their system. It seemed like Wakefield was simply able to deflect any criticism of his research. In 2004... 
10 of Wakefield's Lancet co-authors published a statement saying that the paper did not show the MMR vaccine caused autism. That didn't seem to make much of a difference. The Lancet also looked into accusations of ethical misconduct in Wakefield's research. This included claims that he had recruited patients that would prove his theory. It found only that Wakefield should have been clearer in disclosing sources of his funding. It said the evidence did not support other claims. They also published a response from Wakefield refuting most of the allegations. His theory remained untarnished in the eyes of much of the public. All of these ideas were still circulating when Michelle Cedillo's family took their case to vaccine court in 2007. Thousands of parents now believed their children had become autistic after receiving either vaccines with the Marisol or their MMR shot, or a combination of both. The two theories had merged into one mega conspiracy theory. And now it was up to the Cedillo's attorneys to prove all of this to the court. The evidence summarized very, very briefly is straightforward, that uh, you have a case here that is a test case for the theory, the general theory, that the combination of exposure to thimerosal-containing vaccines with a significant dose of ethyl mercury early in a child's life, combined then with MMR, can result in a complex system response that presents symptoms that get diagnosed as autism. And in particular, a suppressed immune system from the thimerosal in the vaccines. I'm guessing that most people listening to this have probably never heard of the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, aka Vaccine Court. The roots of Vaccine Court go back to the 1980s. I mentioned earlier that there were unfounded concerns about the whooping cough vaccine at this time. The whooping cough vaccine was part of a combo shot called the DPT. In the U.S., parents had begun bringing lawsuits against doctors and vaccine manufacturers, alleging that the shot harmed kids. In one of the lawsuits to succeed, for example, the parents of a three-month-old who received the shot said it had paralyzed him. A jury awarded them more than a million dollars. Between the late 70s and mid-80s, Cases like this became more frequent, and the amount of money parents sought from drug manufacturers grew too. It was becoming expensive to be in the business of making these vaccines. There was a shortage of DPT vaccines, and manufacturers threatened to stop making them altogether. By the mid-80s, only one manufacturer was still making the DPT shot. The price of the shot went up. Doctors were told to no longer give out boosters to older kids. It was a real crisis. In 1986, Congress decided to address this crisis by creating Vaccine Court. If you are in the minority of people who have some kind of bad reaction to a vaccine, Vaccine Court is where you go. On the surface, it really was kind of a perfect solution. We all get vaccinated as part of an effort to keep terrible diseases from circulating in our society. The tiny risk of a bad reaction is part of that social compact. And in order to compensate the people that do get hurt, we all pay a small tax on each childhood vaccine. The system protects drug makers from lawsuits and also was designed to make it easier for victims to get compensated. The thing is, Drawing a direct line of cause and effect between an injury and a vaccine is not always that simple. Improving that link between the MMR shot and autism was at the heart of Michelle Cedillo's case. And uh, we're going to start with opening statements by counsel for the petitioners. So which of you will be starting, Mr. Powers? Uh, Special Master, I'll be starting, and Ms. Chin Kaplan will be giving an opening specific to the test case. Okay. Mr. Powers will make an opening statement on behalf of the Petitioner Steering Committee. Mr. Powers, please go ahead. Michelle's case was the first test case in the autism proceedings. The proceedings worked basically like a class action. 
The vaccine court had received so many similar claims that it asked the petitioners to get together and pick a few to represent them all. They picked six, including Michelle's. If the special masters found these cases to be credible, it would pave the way for similar cases. If they didn't, it would make it a lot harder for other autism cases to get compensated in the court. You can hear the gravity of all of this in Special Master George Hastings' opening remarks. We realize what a very important task has been assigned to us in deciding these cases, and we will give our greatest effort in carrying out that heavy responsibility. Going into the proceedings, there was actually a lot of anxiety in the public health community over how the vaccine court might rule. It was known for being somewhat liberal in its awards, sometimes doling out compensation where it wasn't clear that a vaccine was actually at the root of a health issue. Were the court to find in favor of Michelle Cedillo, it could validate the concerns of her parents and thousands of others that falsely believed vaccines could cause autism. By this point, the public health community had spent years trying to fight that idea. Vaccination rates were dropping. Cases of the measles were rising. And there were signs that it could get even worse. The year before, the UK had its first death from the measles in 14 years. The stakes were high. My name is Sylvia Chen Kaplan, and I, along with my partners Kevin Conway and Ron Homer, represent Michelle Cedillo. Michelle was born on August 30th, 1994. She weighed eight pounds, roughly, and her acros were nine and nine. In other words, she was perfectly healthy. On day one, when she was born, she received a hepatitis B immunization, and it contained 12.5 micrograms of mercury. Parents didn't know about it. The majority of the health profession didn't know about it. The Cedillo's attorney claimed that getting one immunization at birth with the safe kind of mercury had primed Michelle's gut for things to go horribly wrong when she received her MMR. They claimed that the combination of the vaccine with the Marisol and the MMR had caused Michelle to develop stomach issues and regress into autism, along with a host of other very heartbreaking medical conditions. Worse, they insinuated that the government and the drug industry were working together to hide vaccine safety evidence, conspiring to make it difficult to mount the Cedillo's case. The story was compelling. More than 700 people dialed in to hear testimony from the case live on the first day. The press covered it. On Monday, a federal vaccine court here in Washington started to hear testimony in a trial that's expected to last for weeks. A finding for the families could make many parents think twice about vaccinating their children, and doctors worry that could leave kids... The Cedillo family, including Michelle, were present. And Special Master Hastings commended the family for how they had dealt with Michelle's illness. Andrew Wakefield looms over these proceedings. The theory that Michelle's autism had been caused by the MMR was rooted in his work. Michelle's mom, Teresa Cedillo, testifies that she came across the Lancet paper early on when she was looking for answers to what happened to her daughter. But not only that, she had actually met Wakefield at a conference. He had even examined Michelle. She testifies that they had exchanged more than 100 emails. At the end of the first day of testimony... Teresa Cedillo takes the stand. Her lawyer starts by asking about what Michelle was like as a newborn. Uh, Michelle was a, a happy, robust baby. Um, very loving. Um, very responsive. Very, um, very normal. Very happy. Then, Teresa testifies, Michelle got her MMR vaccine at 15 months old. She developed a fever six days later. Um, she was different. She, uh, she seemed withdrawn. Um, she, I thought her hearing had been affected. She was no longer talking. Um, in fact, she was completely quiet. She didn't make any sound, which is why we thought it was her hearing. We thought maybe she couldn't hear, so that's why she wasn't responding um, or making her own sounds. 
This story would evoke empathy in anyone. How scary would it be to go through that as a parent? To have your child seemingly become a different person, practically overnight. The thing is, as compelling as that explanation was, there was a big hole in the story. A few days into the proceeding, a French psychiatrist from McGill University named Eric Fonbon takes the stand. Eric studies autism. In the 90s, when Wakefield first burst onto the scene, he had been living in London. Eric had always found Wakefield's work to be flawed. The way the studies described the onset of autism just didn't gel with what he had found in his own work. Eric had conducted studies and written papers that refuted the theory. As part of the autism proceedings, Eric told the government attorneys to subpoena Cedillo family home videos. Eric told me that what he found would determine the case's outcome. I had the first birthday video clip of that child, and that was horrible to see because you could see she was very delayed in her motor development and social development. She could barely walk and she, she barely barely stand and she, the parents were calling her and she was never like turning her head to look at them. And then, so that was a very, very uh, sort of a poignant, uh, really uh, uh, scene uh, to, to see. Eric says that Michelle was already showing clear signs of autism by her first birthday. This includes specific types of hand gestures. That was several months before her MMR shot. This is a very typical hand-finger mannerisms that you see in uh, kids with autism who are somewhat affected. So there were so unambiguous autistic symptoms. On the sixth day of the hearing, the defense attorneys showed the home videos. Then Eric testifies. Good morning, Dr. Fonda. Would you please introduce yourself to the court? My name is Eric Fonbon. I'm going to review a video taken of Michelle at nine months, two-thirds. She's uh, from June 20, 1995. And just looking at the video, you could see uh, that it was abnormal because you don't make that up, and, and um, so it was very, uh, it was very uh, terrible for the uh, CDO uh, family, uh, and I, I was, I, I didn't feel well for for them, but but uh, my duty was to the court and to the to the science and to the truth. The defense dismantles other parts of the CDO's case like how the data supplied by Andrew Wakefield's business partner in the Irish lab was contaminated. What you've been offered is a series of fanciful notions that are backed up only by the fact that someone who's offered them has a couple of letters after their name, MD or PhD. That does not make it good science. Now I'm going to be as charitable as I can be about the petitioner's case here, the PSC case. It's, at best, speculation, idle speculation. Now, at worst, at worst, it's a contrivance. It's a contrivance that's been developed and articulated and promoted by its chief proponent, and that's Andrew Wakefield. The special masters listened to the evidence, and eventually, they gave their verdict. Two years later, after other test cases were heard, and both parties filed lots of post-hearing briefs, Special Master Hastings issued a ruling. He wrote that the Cedillo family had been, quote, misled by physicians who are guilty, in my view, of gross medical misjudgment. Other test cases were defeated as well. Vaccine court would not be awarding compensation to any parent that claimed their child became autistic after vaccination. But the ruling did not convince vaccine skeptics. If anything, it fueled their concerns. Now, they felt, 
Even the vaccine court wouldn't listen to them. It wasn't just the vaccines that were a problem. It was the whole system. The year after this ruling, the Lancet finally tried to correct the record. In 2010, 12 years after the study came out, the Lancet retracted Wakefield's paper and issued a statement that said several elements of the paper seemed to be incorrect. This was only after Britain's General Medical Council ruled that Wakefield had acted unethically. A few months later, the council also suspended his license to practice. Wakefield's supporters did not abandon him, though. They doubled down. You can hear it in the news reports when Wakefield shows up outside the medical council. Andrew, you're a wonderful man. You're a wonderful person. Andrew Wakefield arrived at the GMC this afternoon to face the cameras, but not the music. He simply wasn't there when the disciplinary panel found him guilty on almost every charge. His supporters... They hold signs saying scapegoat and Dr. Wakefield cares. Vaccine safety scares are nothing new. They've been around for as long as vaccines have. But usually they went away. And by this point, it was clear that concerns over vaccines and autism were not going anywhere anytime soon. It had been more than a decade since Wakefield's 1998 paper. He'd been denounced. His paper had been retracted. Countless times, new research had debunked his ideas. But instead of quietly and shamefully retreating into the shadows, he gained followers. And not just parents of potentially vaccine-injured kids. Celebrities like Robert De Niro would go on to join his cause. Wakefield would eventually date a supermodel and be invited to one of Donald Trump's inaugural balls. We're in a different media landscape, and that, I think, is why the the scare over MMR isn't going away, because it's uh, constantly being regenerated and refueled and repackaged by anti-vaccine campaigners using their own media, their own uh, Facebook uh, channels and YouTube and so on and so forth. different is the internet, specifically social media. Andrew Wakefield had set things in motion in the 90s, and now the vaccine hesitancy movement was seemingly unstoppable. It didn't matter if the press or the scientific establishment or even vaccine court turned against it. The vaccine skeptics now had a megaphone that allowed them to reach like-minded people in any corner of the world. Social media was their sword, and they would learn to wield it deftly. That's next time on Doubt. Doubt is written and reported by me, Kristen V. Brown. Topher Forges is our senior producer. Molly Nugent is our associate producer. Our theme was composed and performed by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Bloomberg editors Tim Annette and Rick Schein. If you'd like to know more about Andrew Wakefield, check out Brian Deere's book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Prognosis if you haven't already. And if you like our show, please leave us a review. It helps others find out about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.